This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's Monica. I'm here with our returning guest and old friend, Anthony Raimondo, the California lawyer who came to the rescue of many small businesses resisting government overreach, really just trying to stay open during lockdown in what seemed to be uh, not a very kosher fashion. And he was there for them in a way that I was asking, why aren't all the all the lawyers there for the people in their towns, and they weren't because you are a man of unique courage, and you are also, it's true, also a man of a lot of knowledge and expertise and experience. So I like to talk to you about a lot of different things, and you're willing to do some homework. So today, I'm going to pick your brain on Section 230 and Is the Internet a Limited Hangout? So buckle up, everybody. Strap on your tanks. We are going deep with the dive master. Hey, Anthony, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. How are you? Great. Thank you. I am actually a little distracted at this moment because I am trying to get us live on Rockfin, and it's not not 100% my area of expertise, so I'm gonna probably not going to be able to do that. Um, so, all right, uh, this... The reason Section 230 is back in the news is that it's, I think, a matter of days, if I'm not mistaken, that the Supreme Court is going to hear some cases. Now, I'm not going to go right down the rabbit hole, but be ready because there are little rabbit holes here and there that I'm going to interrupt you with. But I wondered if you could give us an overview of either, you know, the background of 230 and then what these cases are about, whatever you think is the right order to kind of get us or the lay. I'm totally a lay person in this regard. I have a law degree, but it's basically, it is purely academic. (laughs) So why don't you lay it on us? Well, I think to understand what's happening here, you do need to understand what Section 230 actually is and says, which I think more people don't know that than actually know that. Um, And then I think it's helpful to understand both the substance of these cases, but also procedurally how they got where they are right now, because I think that also has some interesting wrinkles to it that may take us down some of those rabbit holes. So first of all, the thing you have to remember about Section 230 is that it is part of um, a a statute in the federal code that covers a whole lot of different things in electronic communications. And this is one small part of it. But this is a statute that was written in 1996. So as you consider what all this means, you have to remember that this was written with the internet of 1996 in mind, not the internet of 2023. So for those of us who are old enough, we remember a world of the internet that was much more primitive in 1996 than what we're looking at today. You know, pre-smartphone, pre-social media, we didn't have the dimension of algorithms, advertising, government intervention. We were still dealing with a world where the media was really the, the television media and newspapers, not the internet. So 
the the statute section 230 is really interesting because it has some congressional findings and when they write statutes they often will put in legislative findings that are like a general statement of purpose even though they have no legal effect them, uh, of them of themselves and what i kind of cherry picked out of this that i thought was really interesting to me is that especially in light of where we are today one of congress's findings was and i'm quoting here the internet and other interactive computer services offer a forum for a true diversity of political discourse, unique opportunities for cultural development, and myriad avenues for intellectual activity. Which sounds nice. Now fast <laughs> forward from 1996 and think, have we really achieved that with the internet? I, we don't seem to be headed in that direction. I'm, that doesn't seem to be its primary purpose. I think 90% of the internet is porn, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> well, and, and for, you know, I was recently permanently banned from Twitter. So I, um, oh, is it permanent? I keep looking for you. Yeah, they, they, they threw me off Twitter. I, I touched a third rail. Um, Can you tell us well, about that? What, yeah, what was I mean, it, it wasn't that big of a deal. I was arguing with somebody as I was want to do on Twitter. Yeah. And I said that, that being transgender was the same thing as being mentally ill. And apparently that's a, a no no. Um, so right. they booted me for that. Um, you must but, have seen that coming. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't all that <laughs> surprised. Um, and I'm actually shocked at how little I missed Twitter. It actually, they probably did me a favor. Yeah. Um, yeah. but you know, that's not really a true diversity of political discourse or myriad avenues for intellectual activity as Congress was looking forward in 1996. Right. Um, so it also says the internet and other interactive computer services have flourished to the benefit of all Americans with a minimum of government regulation. Of course, now all the big tech companies are begging for further government regulation. And I think you're going to see some of the reasons why today. Um, so the, they, they also said that the, is the policy of the United States, among other things, to preserve the vibrant and competitive free market that presently exists for the internet, internet and other interactive computer services unfettered by federal or state regulation. Uh, I thought you would enjoy that because it's sort of a deal, oh, which is the exact opposite of how, yeah. how our federal government actually functions. Sorry, you froze for uh, a second. Well, maybe yes, exactly. Here. I have four dogs. I have four dogs in the room with me and the little one has decided she wants to start playing. Oh, so my God. I, Four dogs. Oh, my gosh. Um, uh, but then what's interesting is this policy statement takes a turn because it says it's the policy of the United States to encourage the development of technologies which maximize user control over what information is received by individuals, families, and schools who use the Internet and other interactive computer services. That word control now pops up. Also, to remove disincentives for the development and utilization of blocking and filtering technologies that empower parents to restrict children's access to objectionable or inappropriate online material. Well, I raised two teenagers in the internet age. Both of my kids were born in the early 2000s. And I can tell you that as a parent, I found it virtually impossible to keep them yes. from harmful material on the it internet. It is impossible. And I, my son has Down syndrome, so he's like a forever child. And I spent on numerous occasions, I was like, you know what? Try to get other people to do it. I tried to get a service. I tried to get my husband to do it. I'm going to put my full attention on trying to get some kind of filter. I'll pay any price 
on YouTube for him. And the only thing that you could get was like for little, little kids. And the there are companies that wanted to do it. There are public service groups, like action committees, whatever. And the bottom line appeared to be that YouTube, whether expressly or just technologically, will not allow any kind of um, curation overlay, any kind of filter except for their one like little, little kids filter. It was it was literally impossible. And I tried so many different ways. And I just figure if I can't do it and my husband can't do it and I can't hire someone to do it, who's doing it? There's, well, let's go back to if you, so to summarize, in 1996, Congress said that the purpose and policy behind US law regulating the internet was actually to not regulate the internet, to preserve the internet as a vibrant marketplace for free and open competition and free and open political and, and intellectual discourse from a diverse set of communities, but also a place where users could protect themselves from being exposed to, to unpleasant content and for parents to protect their children from content that might be harmful to them. So as we fast forward from 1996 to 2023, do you think that we succeeded? I would say no. So let's talk about what is the meat? What is the meat of Section uh, uh, 230? So the real heart of it is this statement that says treatment of a publisher or speaker. And this is really these, the, the sentence I'm about to read you is the whole thing that this fight is all about. No provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. Those are the, the 26 words that establish the internet. Is that right? Right. Websites and other platforms cannot be held, cannot be held liable as a publisher for material that is posted on those websites. In other words, Google or YouTube or Twitter or whatever, they're not responsible for what you tweet, what you post, what you put up there. As a third party, they are not the publisher. So it protects them from being sued for defamation or any other torts that are related to the content that users publish on the website. And in They're addition, not, other, no torts. Correct. No tort oh. liability for what right. users publish by the platform. So YouTube, right, users can post all kinds of videos. There is no avenue for YouTube to have tort liability as a publisher or speaker with respect to information or videos that are posted right, on right, YouTube. Right, right, But the person who posted it could be. Correct. Right. So Correct. I feel like that's just that's just everything is like that. You know what I mean? Right. That the seems idea like is the to norm. Protect, is to protect – well, not necessarily because, you know, newspapers, for example, or television stations can be held liable – for information that appears on them, the difference is that a newspaper or a TV is not really a free for all the way the, the, that a yeah, website is. Yeah, I feel like is. newspaper and TV is the speaker. Yes, they are. They hire they you. They pay it. for it. Yeah. But again, rewind to 1996. They yeah. were trying to put their heads around this thing that we have that third parties can post on platforms that are. Yeah, created I agree. By I think it's entities. correct. I think that the way it works is. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I the think idea that the here wasn't a bad TV idea. Is curating it? It is. Right. I, I'm in favor of it. So you're, yeah, this, you're going to have to convince me. This wasn't a bad idea. I don't yeah. disagree with that part of this law. 
Right, I don't but think- I think it makes a clear and a, a, a totally easy to understand distinction. Right. So I actually think this was a, a pretty well thought out idea that the website should not be considered the publisher of information that third parties put on the website. Okay. Yep. I agree. So that's the part that I think I like and that you would like. Here's the part that you might not like. No provider of an interact interactive computer service shall be held liable on account of any action voluntarily taken in good faith to restrict access or to availability of material that the provider or user considers to be obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, all that sounds okay, right? Or otherwise objectionable. Well, otherwise objectionable is pretty big. See, but if it were private, if it were true, if we were truly talking about a private entity like my bar, I would be 100% fine. It can be, you could, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, as a libertarian, I would find it distasteful, but a person with private property could discriminate on any basis. And Right, but and, there's nothing private about the internet. Well, I mean, there is something private about a website that you have. There is something, not everything, and, I, and this is where I, I, I'm going to agree with you, but at the internet, the website is a lot of work. So I had a WordPress site. I paid a lot of money, like I paid for a business class website and I put a lot of effort into it. I used their stuff and they took me down for something that I was protected. I had a, literally a fair use right to it. Like it was free speech. They told me that it was free speech. They told me that it was protected. They told me that they would defend me. And then that tricked me to leave a picture up and then they wiped my entire site like a week later. It was really uncool. And I felt like I should have been able to sue, but, and I would never have even considered that if it were strictly private, but for two things. One is I actually don't think they're private. I think that they've been um, set up by the government. There's, um, there's, uh, Evidence to that effect, the government totally subsidized the research and the science to make it possible. They regulate it, and um, it is a place where I think we've been deliberately funneled to use as a public square. Other laws that apply to public places like that, they say if you use, like, the cops, it's a public place. They definitely use, like, patent protection cops. It is a public place in that regard. And um, I feel like, yeah, that it's a setup, and they and there are there is a reason why they shouldn't be able to kick me off just because of all those relationships that they have. Well, there's the there's two points. I mean, the, the internet's initial infrastructure was created by the Department of Defense. Yes, yes. So, ARPA. I mean, from right from 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 the outset, from the outset, the internet was always a government project. Um, there's a fascinating book called The Cuckoo's Egg by this guy Cliff Stoll. Yep. Well, there's this a, is the other one. This is Surveillance uh, Valley: The Secret Military History of the Internet by Yasha Levine. Or Levine. Cliff Stoll was this. Um, uh, Berkeley hippie, basically, who worked for Lawrence Livermore Labs in the early days of the internet, who tracked down a hacker in the days when there was no real methodology to do that in the early days of the internet. So it was all intertwined with the government. It's a fascinating book, and it's sort of a fascinating archive, because he talks a lot about the actual infrastructure of what we now understand to be the internet. Um, but had you sued them for the value that you lost, certainly that had value. You put a huge investment into that. This would have been their defense. 
that they took an action voluntarily in good faith to restrict access that they found otherwise objectionable. Otherwise objectionable, what does that even mean? I mean, that's a huge, it's one thing to say, you know, obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy. These are all very specific. Excessively violent, harassing, very specific terms. But then they close off with otherwise objectionable. Wait, and then but why it says, is that different from a bar? Like, would you, can't you kick somebody out of your house if it's other, if they say something that you object to, even if you're a jerk? Well, I think that the internet is fundamentally different from a bar because structurally, I mean, if you, if you are, if you're thrown out of one bar, you can go two doors down to the next bar. The internet is first of all, built with public resources and public money. So right. there's some level of public platform yeah. there that we all have some entitlement to. Yeah. And using your case as an example, you were a user who put information out there that the provider felt was objectionable and you had no recourse when they deleted your work, wiped it out. And we see this happen. This is the tool that is being used right now to protect these platforms when they engage in censorship that is directly contrary to all that lofty language I read you at the beginning about this free and open discourse of you know political diversity and intellectual diversity. Well, you can't have those two things together. If the internet is to be a thriving marketplace, free of restriction, free of federal and state interference, where, where that Americans rely on for intellectual and political discourse, you can't match that up with a statute that one section says, hey, somebody publishes whatever they publish on your website, don't worry, you're not liable for it. Right. But then on the other hand, saying you can arbitrarily remove whatever you might find just generally objectionable. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Did, isn't that... I, I was reading something about the case that The Wolf of Wall Street was based on where they there was a platform where he was like manipulating stock prices and that platform took down porn and stuff and the New York court ruled that because they they censor porn they are responsible for censoring everything you can't have it both ways either it's open or you censor but you have to choose and that section 230 eliminated that it, Section 230 certainly eliminated that because that's one of the things that will come up in the, when we talk about the Gonzalez case is that the, these cases that the court is going to hear to fast forward a little bit are brought by victims of terrorism who are suing Google and YouTube and Twitter for ISIS activity um, yeah. on those platforms. And one of the arguments they made was, well, you're censoring other things, but you're not censoring you know, recruitment of terrorists and terrorist propaganda. I had a smoking gun. I think Binkley brought this one time, my um, propaganda report partner. He, it was a, it was that either MI6 or the CIA, but it was British and American intelligence together were producing terrorist recruitment videos for YouTube and they got caught red handed. 
And they said that it was so that it was like a honeypot. We could attract people who were prone to being radicalized online. Yet there was absolutely no tracking or tracing. There was absolutely no way to, to catch people, to trace them. And I feel like every single case, every single case that I've seen about this kind of thing is suspicious. Like I find it, and, and because of that, I really feel like, wow, this actually works pretty well. Like it, it, the, the danger is really not that significant because the cases that are brought up seem to me in one way or another manufactured a lot of times. But I accept these cases, you know, I'll talk about these cases, but that annoys me because I don't like things that, that's what really annoys me about like false flags and psyops and stuff, or even chemtrails. Like I want to know the truth. I want to know the sunset as a reflection of God's face. I do not want it as a reflection of like something sprayed in the air. And it, similarly, if this were a problem that really was a failure of the free market or failure of whatever, okay. But instead, I feel like they've manufactured this problem so that they can claw back the internet after the incumbents have gotten huge and they can close the door with huge regulatory barriers to entry that'll make it impossible for any new entrants to get in there. Anybody who doesn't want their kids to see porn, there's not going to be a GooTube for them. It's going to, you know, just, it's going to be hard for people to start up. So, uh, yes. Yeah, well, so, okay, they're mostly really annoyed. Cases. I think that's a good segue for us to start talking now about Gonzalez versus Google and okay. the other two cases that are associated with it. Okay, so when we talk about Gonzalez, this is a case based on um, a series of terrorist attacks that happened in Paris in November of 2015. Um, about 130 people, I think, were killed by the terrorists, and ISIS took responsibility for these series of attacks in, uh, in Paris. They bombed and shot up cafes and a bunch of different places in Paris. So among the people killed was a single American citizen. Uh, a young lady named Nohemi Gonzalez, who was a 23-year-old student. So her family sued Google as the parent company of YouTube. And their the core of their claim was that through YouTube's algorithms and its recommendation system that tailors content based on user profiles, that YouTube led users towards recruitment videos for ISIS. And because they were essentially facilitating ISIS recruitment, that gave them some measure of legal responsibility for her death. Google defends itself by relying on Section 230, saying, nope, we're not responsible for any content published on our platform. The district court ruled in favor of Google, and then that decision was upheld by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Excuse me, I'm going to shut this down. <laughs> I apologize for the racket. So... Um, so Google is saying that they're not responsible, but I will say it annoys me no end because you're right. They constantly, constantly take my videos down constantly, <laughs> you know, so they have this giant apparatus where they assert hyper control beyond anything that, I mean, I, I actually recently won an appeal because it's gotten so ridiculous. The whole angle on this thing is way more interesting than you think. And Ooh. there's a whole part of this that has nothing to do with Section 230 that's actually the most interesting part of the case. Let me get there. But before I do that, I got to explain something procedurally because this is the stuff we're going to we're going to do a little bit of legal nerding here right now. I love um, it. 
These cases were dismissed on what is called a Rule 12 motion under the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. So under the way a Rule 12 motion works is in a lawsuit, I file a written complaint against you if I'm going to sue you. And it says, Monica did all of these things that give that caused this harm to me. That gives rise to liability. It puts you on notice of what it is that I'm claiming against you. And in federal court, those things have to be actually pretty specific. When I serve you with that complaint, you now have two options. One, you can answer that complaint, which means you deny the claims that I've made against you. In federal court, if there's facts that I've alleged that are true, you have to admit them. So you have to admit what's true and deny what's, what you say is false. And then you can present additional defenses in that answer. Or you can file a Rule 12 motion. The way a Rule 12 motion works is the court takes everything in that complaint as though it was true. Okay. So they, they stipulate say, all so the facts. So what you're saying is, judge, take that right. all as true. Even if everything they said in right. that complaint is true, there's no case against me. Right. So it still has to be dismissed, even if it's true. We don't need to waste any time with this. Just dismiss it out of the gate. Right. That's what they did here. And that's what Google prevailed on. Okay. Wow. That was how they, that, that's how a lot of lawsuits that they want to, Remember, what they really don't want in troublesome lawsuits is for discovery to start. Discovery is the exchange of information by both sides. The right to discovery is very, very broad. It's not limited by admissibility of evidence. And it's an incredibly powerful tool to go start digging into what does the other side have. The okay, so just so in court, whether it's criminal or civil, there's basically two things. You have to you have to say, did you do anything wrong? Uh, or is is there a wrong thing alleged? So that's the issue. And then the facts are, well, there is a, long th a wrong thing alleged, but I didn't actually do it. No, this is different. First okay. of all, criminal and civil are different. So put aside yeah. criminal. This okay. is civil. So in that civil complaint, you have to say these are the facts. Right. Here's how these facts constitute some type of illegal conduct. And how that illegal conduct then caused harm to me. Therefore, the other party is liable for that harm that is caused to me. Okay. Is that how torts work? Because it's, torts, I feel like, they, they're, it, they don't actually call it like illegal conduct. It's just stupid or harmful. Or, well, it, is this it different be, from it, that? It, it can be unlawful in, in it. I'm using unlawful in, in a very general sense. Okay, got so it. I negligence technically would be unlawful yeah. conduct because you're not entitled to be negligent. Right, right, right. But it can, but it doesn't have to be intentional. Right. And it doesn't have okay. to be statutory. You right. Know, it doesn't, it doesn't have, have to be, to be statutory. It can be common law. A right. tort can either be common law or statutory. What we're talking but it about can here even be a case. Like it can be a unique case that has to be like where yes. you're stupid. Okay, good. Yes, but it fits in, but it has to fit into some sort of legal doctrine arising out of either statute or common law. Got it. Understood. Okay. okay so, so what in this case you said? So here, um, the liability was based on both statute and federal common law, but Google said, it doesn't matter. Even if all that's true, even if we did recruitment for ISIS and helped with recruitment for ISIS, section 230 protects us. Okay. We're going to get into the weeds a little bit in a minute. Once I give you the framework. Okay. Um, a related case, which has also been accepted for review by the Supreme Court, is Twitter Inc. versus, I'm going to murder these names, forgive me, Tomney. Okay. Tomney involves the death of a Jordanian citizen named Na Na 
Nawaz Alasov, who died in 2017 during an ISIS attack in Istanbul. His family sued Twitter, Google, and Facebook, claiming that the companies failed to control terrorist content on their sites. Very similar. Um, of interest on this one, the Google case, Gonzalez, was thrown out completely, which we'll get into why in a minute. On this one, it was only part of it was thrown out. They also sued under the Anti-Terrorism Act, arguing that Twitter and these other platforms were aiding and abetting international terrorism in violation of a federal statute called the Anti-Terrorism Act. And again, we're going to get into some, some technical details on that. But the, the interesting part of that claim, and this claim was also made in Gonzalez, but it was dismissed in Gonzalez for reasons that I'll, I'll explain in a minute. But what happened is the anti-terrorism attack prohibits, it creates both civil and criminal liability for anyone who gives material support, substantial material support to terror, international terrorist activity. What they argued here was what happens with YouTube and these other platforms is advertising. Google puts ads on or near these videos. When I'm saying Google, Google includes YouTube because YouTube's owned by Google. But they get advertising revenue from these videos that comes to Google. Google kicks back portions of that ad revenue to the creator of the video. You're saying these videos are monetized? Yes. I haven't been monetized in like five years. <laughs> That's well, maybe crazy. you should get some support from ISIS because you could be monetized. Oh my gosh, it's such a CIA operation. Now, they may be demonetized now. Remember, we're talking about pre-2015. Oh, that was five years ago, yeah. Yeah, 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 so yeah, we're yeah. It, This may have changed now. It's still, But the totally. world that the court's looking at is I'm a calling terrorist attack that occurred BS in 2015 and one that occurred in yeah. 2017. Right. And I'm going to get into in a minute the details of these allegations and why one was dismissed and the other wasn't dismissed. What year was Gonzalez, you said? 2015? Uh, no. Gonzalez was based on a 2015 terrorist attack okay. in Paris. Got it. And Tomney was based on a 2017 terrorist yeah, attack in Istanbul. Yeah. Okay, got it. The third case, which nobody wants to talk about, which was dismissed immediately. Hold on, but the but the Istanbul case was not dismissed immediately, and you're going to tell me why in a second. No, that that's on appeal from Twitter. Part of it was dismissed, but part of it survived, and the Ninth Circuit kept it alive. Okay. So you the have Ninth Gonzalez, Circuit kept it alive. Okay. Yes. You have Gonzalez. The plaintiffs are appealing a complete dismissal of their claims. Tomney, you have Twitter appealing the part that was kept alive, which, by the way, almost never happens. One of the rarest types of appeals is an appeal from a denial of a Rule 12 motion. You have an automatic right of appeal if the Rule 12 motion is granted against you, like Gonzalez, because that's the death of your case. Your case is over. It's a final judgment against you. Right. So that's automatically appealable. If you lose a Rule 12 motion as a defendant, meaning the court says, yeah, no, we're to not going to dismiss this facts. case, it can go yeah. forward. Usually they won't ever hear an appeal of that because their answer is, you know what, go litigate. Right. And then if you lose at the end, then appeal it. But no, right. we're not going to hear that. Now. I'm surprised that it's unheard of because of what you said about discovery. 
Well, that's why people try to do it, but the courts don't Got like it. to okay. hear appeals. It's unheard of because they don't. Final. It's not effective. And so, right. okay. a, it's discretionary. A court yeah. could take up that appeal. Oh, but I, I mean, see. I've tried a couple of times over the course of my career. I've never been able to have a court take up a denial okay. of my effort to dismiss a case because their answer is go raise your defenses then. Right. This is not And the then end when there's the a line. final judgment, then bring that back to us. But we're not going to decide this now. There's no just go defend yourself. And Twitter okay, but, did succeed. And, but they accepted it from Twitter. Got it. <laughs> okay. Out here, right? Possibly That's my neighborhood. because Gonzalez was so similar and Gonzalez was going up at the same time. Okay. But it's an interesting wrinkle in all of this. Mm-hmm. The third case. Uh, let me make sure I've got the name. The third case is Claiborne. Claiborne is from an event that I know you're familiar with. Victims of the San Bernardino attack. Snap. That one made me nuts because I watched that thing going down and I was so quick on the draw to find pictures and stuff. I found pictures of those people, the alleged perps, just totally like middle class Americans, upper middle class even. There is absolutely no doubt in my mind those guys were total patsies. And I will never forget, I might have even woken up this morning thinking about this by some cosmic synchro of the lawyer who came out and said, man, I I thought stuff that people were saying about the hoax in Connecticut was absolute insanity. But this case, this is just a setup. And boy, you never heard from that lawyer again. And there's a picture of the male perp floating around the internet, which I have, of absolute gangland slaying. He was all in black. He had zip ties around his back and he was shot in the head. And it was that was after he was in custody. It's a terrible, terrible story. And I probably need to remove this video from YouTube probably before it posts. <laughs> we'll finish so, it, but I'm going to just zip on over there and take this down. So San Bernardino... Victims in that attack, same kind of lawsuit, same kind of allegations. You guys are promoting ISIS. This is a terrorist attack, and you're liable for it. What's interesting in that one is the wrinkle in that one was in both the Paris and the Istanbul attacks, ISIS came out openly and claimed responsibility. We planned it. We did it. It's ours. The story, the narrative surrounding the San Bernardino attack was that these two perps were sympathizers with ISIS and they pledged their loyalty to ISIS and al-Baghdadi, supposedly, allegedly. They had a little baby. They lived with their mom. Like, come on. So again, that was the narrative that came out publicly, okay? So that narrative gave the court an out. The court said in Claiborne, you haven't even plausibly alleged that this was an ISIS attack. Now, that's a very interesting thing. So there's no reason to even hear this case because even if they are, even if these platforms are aiding and abetting ISIS, ISIS didn't do this one. Okay, well, ISIS probably didn't do that one, but on a whole different narrative than the court was looking at. Right, right. Okay. But still, I wouldn't think but that ISIS would be the difference maker. They were radicalized, right? On, but here's I mean, the, the argument really, was that they were radicalized. Well, remember, they're also, they're also relying heavily on – what they're relying on heavily in these cases is two theories. One, revenue is being kicked back to ISIS through advertising. And two, these videos are essentially ISIS recruitment videos. 
and they're promoting recruitment for ISIS specifically, not necessarily, you know, supposedly random people that are sympathetic to ISIS. Again, there's logic pretzels in here where this all falls <laughs> apart. Okay. Yes. But what's really interesting from a lawyer's perspective about Claiborne is I've filed plenty of Rule 12 motions as a, a defense lawyer over the years. And plaintiffs will allege crazy things in their complaints. And you tell the court, judge, come on, that's not even plausible. Right. And there is a little bit of case law out there that the, the complaint has to have some basic measure of plausibility, but not like this. In a normal circumstance, what I would expect to have happen in a case like this is the, the defendant says, well, it's not plausible. Look at this media stuff. Because remember, Rule 12 motion is only what's in the complaint. They're not allowed to look outside the four corners of the complaint. So why is the judge even looking at media that's talking about ISIS didn't claim responsibility for this? Right. Number one. Number two, every time I've argued to a court, well, judge, that their accusations aren't even plausible. You're wasting everyone's time. The judge will say, well, counsel, if it's not plausible, go ahead and defend yourself against it. They got a chance in discovery to prove it. If it's not plausible, you should be able to dispense with it in discovery and get it dismissed later once the evidence is on the table. Not San Bernardino. Gone off the map. No appeal. Nothing. Gone. Over. Well, they, I bet they- Not plausible. Yeah. Not going to ask any questions. Yeah. No discovery. Right. That's for sure. They, they just, right? They, that whole thing was about the phone, if I recall correctly. They wanted access so, to the phone, but yeah, right. In civil no discovery- there would be an incredible amount of access to all kinds of documentation, to all of the social media of these perpetrators and of everybody associated with this. That one caught my eye, even though it's not really part of the Supreme Court thing, because I'm like, oh, yeah, now I know why they shut down Claiborne at the pleading stage with no discovery. You know, it's for the same reason that you saw election cases in 2020 shut down before any discovery. They're not going to allow people to get access to things that might open up doors that they don't want. You know, it's it's so annoying to me that they have – someday we absolutely must talk at length about plea bargains because I feel like – or like um, concurrent crime stuff, layered stuff, RICO and everything. They chart for one single act, actus rea, they – put a whole bunch of different crimes and then they like they label it a bunch of different things, charge with a bunch of different things, can threaten extended sentences, consecutive sentences, and then they tell you you've got to plea bargain and then there's never any discovery and I never get to the thing I want, which is to see the face of God in the sunset. All I see is the chemtrail. All I see is the thing that is the accusation and the guilty plea. And the example I use for how preposterous it is, is that Tommy Chong was, went to jail, spent a year in jail for a crime he wasn't even uh, accused of. Did you, do you, are you familiar with this story? There's a, I'm like, not familiar with that case. I mean, I know he went to jail, but I, yeah, I don't know the details there's of it. a documentary called AKA Tommy Chong, where his son was absolutely, I'm not going to get into all the details, entrapped into selling decorative bongs to a, a state where it's illegal. He was absolutely entrapped. It's a long story. And they went to Tommy Chong and they said, we're going to put your wife and son who run this company in jail for 99 years um, but if you want to cop to it instead, 
will allow it. And even in the court records where they were like looking for jail time for him, they said Tommy Chong is well known for mocking law enforcement in film. <laughs> like talk about irrelevant. But the idea that a person conserves a, a crime that he's not even accused of, that's how manipulative the plea system is. And I would also say if you don't have plea bargains, you can uh you would have to cut back on these um you know, mala prohibita laws because the the system couldn't absorb them all. So that's why I hate plea bargains. But well, that, but because you don't get to know to, the uh, truth. That's what they did to Michael Flynn. I think is that his name, the general that was connected to Trump. That was working. Yeah, with Trump. that was he was the it head was, of the Defense Intelligence Agency yeah, when they, they invented gonna, yeah, ISIS. They were going <laughs> to civil forfeiture that guy. They were wow. basically going to destroy everything for his family if he didn't get on his knees and plead. Right. Um. But you know, there's a lot more layers to that. Yeah, one as yeah, well. too, for but, sure. We could do so many. I got to make notes of what we're going to so do. So anyway, um, in Gonzalez, you had a few different issues. Um, one that the court dealt with very quickly was Google argued that Section 230 didn't apply, or the I'm sorry, the plaintiffs argued that Section 230 did not apply because the conduct all occurred outside of the United States. The court said no, the relevant conduct occurred within the United States because these. Websites are, are their interaction with Google is happening within the United States because Google's in the United States and you're in a U.S. court. So we're going to apply Section 230. Um, so Section 230 barred um, any direct liability for the actual content that ISIS was putting out there. Now, the interesting claim was that the revenue sharing through advertising um was aiding and abetting international terrorist activity, um, which falls under a statute called Justice Against Sponsors for Terrorism, which is a part of, it amended the anti-terrorism attack to create secondary civil liability for aiding and, international, aiding and abetting international terrorism. Gonzalez was dismissed on those grounds. And this is another interesting wrinkle because the court said that they didn't sufficiently plead the, the proximate cause. In other words, that the revenue sharing actually caused the terrorist attacks. And what the court really fixated on was that they never said how much money Google gave to ISIS through these ads, which would seem to be very fertile ground for discovery, right? Like that's what we want people to be able to find out in discovery. Right. And if it's not enough to make a difference, right. then if it's let, just that, theoretical, let that come out and you can litigate that issue. Yeah, that has to be actual. But again, that's why it's so bizarre for this to happen on a Rule 12 motion. Like the court, the, the district court and the Ninth Circuit wanted this to go away. So now in the Tamna case, what was interesting is the Ninth Circuit said that the revenue sharing claims were sufficiently pled and that if those claims were proven at trial, there could be liability. Um, and again, that's that aiding and abetting. So here is the interesting observation from the Ninth Circuit. Section 230 only protects from liability arising from material posted from someone else. These claims, the revenue sharing claims, don't require the court to treat a platform as a publisher, right? Because it's not about what the content was or what the publication was. It's about, hey, you're kicking ad revenue back to ISIS. You're sharing revenue with them. You're aiding and abetting their activities in international terrorism. And similarly, oh, that's interesting. Similarly, the claims that the algorithms, the claims that the algorithms driving ISIS videos to people who are receptive to those videos doesn't require... Google or Twitter or YouTube to be treated as a publisher. Because what you're saying, what they're saying is 
if I'm a person who's becoming radicalized and your algorithm automatically starts feeding me YouTube videos from ISIS, you are aiding ISIS to reach the very people who will join its per, its, its terrorist organization <laughs> and carry out its aims. That's true. It's not about being a publisher. So this is what the Supreme well, Court is really uh, going to have to I kind of – hold on a second. First of all, I did want to mention that I think at this time when Section 230 came down – we weren't even sure how people would make money on the internet. Remember, there were different revenue Correct. profiles. So then, uh, but in that case, I mean, a publisher is, like a newspaper is an ad platform. The content is to drive the ads. Like when I was on the radio, the whole entire way you did it, the clock, the teases, everything was about getting people to listen through the ads so I might say a publisher is an ad platform and nothing more. So I don't. I think it's a distinction without a difference. But legally, they don't have to call them a publisher, right? The key to that word publisher is for things like defamation liability or harassment liability. Um, I don't. This I was don't the court. Know. I this, mean, the court, this, Well, the Supreme Court's. Gonna, this is what they're going to have to tackle. Because I guess it would be this like court. having sensationalistic stuff that isn't true to like National Enquirer or whatever, which may be true. It probably is true um, to say so stuff in, like that in order to sell newspapers. I mean, well, are selling newspapers and selling ads two different things? Maybe that's the distinction. I would say a newspaper so, is just for ads. So in Gonzalez, the direct liability claim was Google was involved in international terrorism because of this revenue sharing. And the court said, no, we're not going to find that there's direct liability that they're actually engaged in international terrorism because there's no evidence that Google had any intent or purpose to engage in international terrorism. Wait, hold on. Are you familiar with the Ross Ulbricht case? Uh-huh. He had no intention of engaging in drug dealing. There's no consistency in any of this. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I mean, that poor guy, my heart bleeds for him. People talk about Edward Snowden and Assange. Oh, and stuff. Yeah. It's Ross I mean, Albrecht who's the, the I mean, those other guys. Life. Well, and then they they created that false narrative that he was trying to have somebody killed, which they never even alleged against him in court. But the media gleefully portrayed him as like this mafia boss hiring hitmen when there was no evidence that he ever did any of that sort of thing. And they ruined his life. And they couldn't bring into he was not allowed to use in his defense that two different agents were convicted of malfeasance in his case. So, I mean, one was a Secret Service agent. What the hell? And they, anyway, whatever. So, okay, there's no consistency, obviously. Anyway, so they have the, the, the more interesting claim is the secondary claim, which is aiding and abetting, not direct involvement in terrorism, but aiding and abetting terrorism. And that's the one where the court said, you didn't plead that how much money it was. You didn't allege that it was, you know, you didn't sufficient, give enough detail for us to conclude that it was substantial. So we're throwing it out, which is, I mean, from a civil defense attorney perspective is crazy because that's exactly what discovery is there for. Right. Um, so, um, right. I pulled a quote out of the decision because I found this to be a really interesting quote. This is from the Ninth Circuit decision, and I'm quoting. The original goal of Section 230 was modest. 
By passing Section 230, Congress sought to allow interactive computer services to perform some editing on user-generated content without thereby becoming liable for all defamatory or otherwise unlawful messages that they didn't edit or delete, which is what you were talking about earlier, right? On the um, Wolf of Wall Street. uh, Yeah, the Wolf of Wall Street case. You know, that if you delete some, you have to delete all or you're going to have liability. The court said that for the revenue sharing claims, we don't have to treat Google as a publisher, so they're not barred by 230. Now, Gonzalez first treated the ad revenue as direct involvement in acts of international terrorism, which honestly, at first I was like, well, that makes sense. But then I thought about it. I'm like, well, wait a minute. If you're knowingly monetizing ISIS and sending them money, maybe you are engaged in international terrorism. (laughs) Um, or indifferent to it, like any, you know, trafficker mule, like they're like mules. Yeah, I mean, the court even admitted that the law doesn't require for liability that the terror anti-terrorism act doesn't require intent. Oh, definitely not. Just an just an awareness of the external intent, and the plaintiff's claim was knowingly providing funding to a terrorist organization necessarily constitutes international terrorism, which is not a bad argument. Yeah, but certainly some discovery and presentation of evidence on that fact. In particular, how did ISIS ever get approved for monetization for ad revenue sharing? I mean, it would seem that these plaintiffs should have the opportunity to get some discovery on how did Google actually and YouTube approve revenue sharing back to ISIS? I mean, how does that even work where you're, where you're sending yeah. money? Wait, does ISIS have a bank account you're sending money to? And does it say ISIS on it? What did Google really know Does about Does Google, this? in that year, did they pay in Bitcoin? Like, I don't know. Yeah. But again, without discovery, we'll never right. know. And that one to me is like, how did this get dismissed on a motion to dismiss? If you're going to accept the argument that, I mean, if you're going to say, I mean, if you're going to say, well, the law doesn't require intent, just an awareness of an external intent by the third party, by the, by the organization, certainly... ISIS's intentions are well known. And you can draw an inference that Google must have known what their intentions were. Certainly these plaintiffs were entitled to try to prove that claim that Google was engaged in international terrorism by knowingly funding an international terrorist organization. But they dismissed it. So here's where it got weird. The plaintiffs argued a case where there was liability for some people that made donations to Hamas. There's a case out there where a lawsuit was successful against people who were donors to Hamas. And that's designated a terrorist organization, which it may or may not have been at different points of time, as far as I... Whether or not you consider it a terrorist organization, clearly the law considers it as such. Right. That is true. But they said voluntarily sharing ad revenue is different from voluntary donations to a terrorist organization. They said it was foreseeable that there's language in the statute that requires that the the money be used to intimidate or coerce civilian populations, which is part of the definition of terrorism under the Anti-Terrorism Act. And they said it was foreseeable that people who donated to uh, Hamas that their money would be used to intimidate or coerce civilian populations. Isn't Hamas this is my favorite like, part. literally a political organization? 
I believe it's yeah, well, makes a claim again, set to aside be the merits a of whether, whether people should be sued for, do, for donating to Hamas. But once right. you let them be sued for donating to Hamas, what's the difference between that and Google kicking ad revenue back to ISIS? Right. I, I, I don't. I, Their difference was yeah. the difference that the court pointed out was, well, those people were donating to Hamas. So clearly they must have somehow believed in Hamas's aims. But Google was acting only out of economic self-enrichment. They only wanted to make money. They didn't care what ISIS was but doing. But I thought intent didn't matter. Well, right. That's kind of an intent the, argument. Right. Yeah. Logical pretzels. And, and by the way, if you don't care what the money's being used for, as long as you're making money off of it, isn't maybe that worse than somebody who agrees with Hamas's political aims? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's trying your- to support those aims. But Google saying, "Hey, look, I don't care if my money if this money goes to terrorists. I'm making money." Yeah, off. it's like a contract and, killing. It's like, well, I didn't care if he yeah, died I mean, or not. The, the, I was just. But I was getting paid to kill him. But, I, right, but hey, we're making money off these ISIS ads. Who cares what they're here's, doing? At that time, was it absolutely undisputed that they had the capacity to distinguish among different types of videos? Like, I don't know. I don't remember when I started getting demonetized. It was around that time. Well, again, I started it's getting deplatformed in 2018. It's not, none of that is clear because there was no discovery. Right, right. Got it. That's why I'm saying. This is, the, this is why a case like this was inappropriate for dismissal under Rule 12, right. independent of any of these larger right. esoteric issues. Right. Just from a pure litigation issue, the plaintiff should have had an opportunity to do discovery and depose people from Google and get documents from Google and investigate how did this happen? How does this process work of being approved or disapproved for modernization? And by the way, Google should have been compelled in discovery to produce evidence that says we didn't know. I mean, if the answer is we didn't know and we can't control that, then that should come out in discovery. Okay. So not, so where are we now? So where we are now is Google won this case. It was dismissed. The plaintiffs have appealed the, the, uh, so the, the case was originally dismissed at the trial court, the district court. It was appealed to the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit ruled in favor of Google, and the Supreme Court has accepted this case. When did they rule? When did the Ninth Circuit rule? Do you happen to know when that was? Um, Hang on. I've got it here somewhere. Hold on a second. I believe I have the original decision here. I told you I did my homework. Yes. I feel like I owe you like $300 an hour or something. (laughs) Oh, I charge more than that. Do, oh, really? It's been a long time since <laughs> I've needed a lawyer. Uh, yeah, I'm like five fifty to six hundred an hour. Holy cannoli! But, oh my gosh! But I'll do this $10 one. Ten dollars a minute. All right. Well, you're going to have to invite yourself on next time because I can't impose on you for that that kind of value uh, I, added. I do a lot of things for free, <laughs> and I give discounts all the time. So I'm actually way more affordable than most of the people that I compete with, believe it or not. $10 a minute. Uh, I mean, wow. Uh, when did this come out? Sorry, bear with me. I'm trying to navigate this web. Uh, 2021. So I this makes me wonder how important it is, like what a difference a presidential administration makes in these federal circuit courts. It's hard to say. I I didn't do a lot of digging on these judges. No, I'm just saying that I, you know generally. But yeah, and, the judges. And, I, don't, I don't know. 
and who appoint a federal. Uh, the change in federal administration rarely has a huge impact on um, on the courts because they're already there. These are lifetime appointments, um, but it can. I mean, you know, in we saw a, a a vast change in how things like illegal immigration were treated from Obama to Trump. The courts had no problem with Obama's aggressive actions with respect to illegal immigration. And then all of a sudden, illegal immigration became something that we had to protect when Trump was president. But I think that has a lot more to do with what was going on, you know, sort of socially and culturally surrounding all the Trump derangement and everything else. <laughs> I mean, these judges are still human beings. Um, and they're, you know, you know, certainly the way they dealt with the law under, you know, COVID illustrates that judges are human beings who are shaped by cultural forces and how they see the law because yeah. things that would have been unimaginable before COVID happened under COVID. It looks so, like there were 10 Trump appointees by then, but there's like 50 judges. So, so, um, in order to have secondary liability for aiding and abetting under federal precedent, the party who the defendant aids has to have performed a wrongful act that causes an injury. Well, a terrorist act is a wrongful act that causes injury. The defendant, the person being sued, has to be generally aware of their role as part of an overall illegal or tortious activity at the time they provide the assistance. That's the question of, was Google aware that ISIS was engaged in illegal activity? Again, we don't know. Fruitful for discovery. <laughs> It'd be fruitful right. for discovery, but it seems pretty hard to. I speculate. I mean, ISIS's original presence on the internet, from what I remember, was beheading videos, right? Yeah. So, it, it, and you it's could see real beheading you, videos as well at that time. Yes, yeah. Their their original videos were all genuine, like well, genuine and staged beheading. No, videos. No, the real but, one you, you know, can tell, like you know, the ones that are staged. If you happen to have the misfortune yeah. of stumbling upon a real one, which still will like give me the gag reflex. It's unbelievably horrible. So, well, my first, my, we talked earlier about kids. My first efforts at trying to keep my kids away from internet yeah. content was their friends telling them about beheading videos and me trying to keep them from watching yeah. that stuff. No, it's, you can't unsee um, that. And the last one is that the defendant must knowingly and substantially assist with the principal violation. And that's where they got the Gonzalez plaintiffs. The court said, unless you, allege how much money they got from ISIS, we can't say that it was substantial. Right. Because the court said, yes, ISIS performed Oh, they a should have just alleged injury. a big number. Why didn't they? Because normally you wouldn't have okay, to. Okay, got it. Normally you would just allege the conclusion that it was substantial. Right, right. And then you would find the number in discovery. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, Okay, so so and then gonna, there was also yeah. this weird there was this weird out that the court gave itself that the assistance was not substantial because Google was not intending to engage in terrorism. Yeah, but that's not we know that's not. It doesn't kind of, matter. So right? look, they said earlier that there was no intent. So, but but that so is this Gonzalez one of the one of the Supreme Court cases that is being reported on as potentially affecting Section 230? Because it sounds to me yes. like most of this stuff really goes to the anti-terrorism. Yeah, the, the meat of this case has nothing to do with Section 230. Right. Uh, as usual with legal matters and lots of other matters, the media's got this completely wrong. And that's what Google is focusing on. All of Google's media stuff 
But like, you know, you would send me a Wall Street Journal. Google's out there saying this is going to destroy the Internet as right. we know it. But that doesn't mean that you're not going to have some weird off point dissent or concurrence that's off point and that they tout or, that or use it to actually or have, I have an every expectation that Google's going to argue that you're, they're being treated as, even for the Anti-Terrorism Act claims, they're being treated as a publisher. Remember, the whole Anti-Terrorism Act claim depends upon the Ninth Circuit's conclusion that you don't have to treat Google as a publisher for those claims. Right. So the Supreme Court could, I think it's unlikely, but I think the Supreme Court could potentially broaden the scope of 230 by saying, no, this is what you would do to a publisher, and this requires you to treat them as a publisher. You know, the thing that's interesting about it is the, is the revenue-sharing part of it. Now, the other case, the Twitter case, Tomney, this the is reason that that one, the other Supreme Court case. Yes, is the other one that's being heard by the Supreme Court. That one survived the district court, survived the Ninth Circuit. And the reason that and the, the claim that survived is this secondary aiding and abetting claim. There, they didn't. They they claimed in their complaint that the support was substantial, not because of money but substantial assistance in recruitment and services essential to ISIS growth and expansion. So the court said, you're saying that the algorithms are, are a critical element in ISIS recruiting and, and the services by providing them these platforms and these algorithms, you're providing ISIS with services that are essential to its growth. Therefore, you are aiding and abetting the growth and recruitment for this international terrorist organization. We're going to give you a chance to prove that. We're going to let you do discovery on that. Wow, that's interesting because something going on with, I've noticed this with Facebook and a lot of other, uh, you know, propaganda I've been reading, they, from Infosys, from the World Economic Forum, they want data. They want to understand how algorithms work. They want this to be public. They don't want companies to be able to keep private their algo stuff. And I think it's because that is the one little piece of value some of these startups can bring is their data, data management, how they work, their proprietary stuff. So I wouldn't, uh, that's interesting to me. So you understand now why Twitter is appealing this. Right. Because they don't want to have any discovery done into how their algorithms actually work. Right. Do you think that's because, I mean, how, how cynical are you? Do you think that's because it's essential to their profitability or because it's essential to their role as a, as a covert agent? What's the difference? I mean, I think those two things are inexorably intertwined. At that level. I mean, you know, when, when, when people do the biddings of intelligence, they yeah. generally are well rewarded. Yeah, for yeah, yeah. Good point. Good point. I mean, you know, so I think those things are intertwined, so, but yeah, I mean, I think what's if, if this was simply about, if this was simply about liability, I think Twitter would have probably accepted the ruling and said, all right, we're going to litigate this and we're going to win. And we're going to show that we're not. Cause I think the, I think the claim related to assistance and recruitment from the algos is, I think that's a lot more thin than the revenue sharing one. I mean, I think you gave money to ISIS is a better claim for right. liability than you helped ISIS recruit through YouTube. Right. And so, you know, I think that 
I mean, I mean, if I'm Twitter's defense attorney and I'm thinking about this from a defense standpoint, I'm going to argue the people that want to join ISIS and commit terrorist attacks, they're going to find ISIS whether there's an algorithm directing them to videos or not. So what? So there's no. We're not responsible for for the growth. We're not providing substantial assistance in their recruitment because the people that want to find ISIS are going to find ISIS whether we have an algorithm or not. In the Google case, it's a much better argument to say you're providing revenue to a terrorist organization through advertising. You're knowingly kicking them back revenue. That's a much better case for liability against Google than against um, than against Twitter on, yeah. in, in Tamnet. But I think the reason that this has been appealed and probably the reason why it was accepted for appeal is that there are forces that do not want discovery to occur into Twitter's algos and what they're driving and what they're – remember, discovery is not what is just relevant to this case. Discovery includes anything that is relevant or reasonably calculated to lead to the discovery of relevant evidence. It's an unbelievably right. Very broad, broad. Okay. So what do you, and so they yeah. can dig up all kinds of stuff. God only knows what they would dig up. You know, we're getting this. Some of my conservative friends get really angry at me because they're all in love with Elon Musk and the Twitter Are files. And, all this. and I'm like, don't you, you're just being fed the crap <laughs> they want you to see. So you don't see the other, you don't even ask any questions about the stuff they don't want. Do they to love see. them for Neuralink as well? Yeah, well, I, I I throw Neuralink at them all the time. I'm like, I'm like, you guys are in love okay. with the guy that wants to put a chip in yeah. your brain. What are you talking and they, about? And they entrust him to try to get a man on the moon. I mean, the guy's an inside job. Well, and a, and a guy who every dime he ever made was from the I government. Know. I know. Mean, oh my gosh, it's too much. It's too much. But, talk about being rewarded. Talk about being rewarded yes, for your inexorable absolutely. In, intertwinement with government activity. Okay. He's been grandly rewarded. So what would be the potential remedy here? Is it simply a case? I mean, obviously the Supreme court isn't uh, in the habit of taking on things strictly to see who should get paid what damages they're they're going to make a ruling that has impact right. this is all about what, what whether these cases can even go forward really so oh so a, if they yes. rule on it it's just going to push it down but still that is that is that is a ruling on there's no final outcome at issue here it's, okay it's, so it's strictly it's, can these it's can, can these entities be sued for this so this is really going to be about interpretation of the scope of these statutes. Right. Okay. So and it is what the Google is really fighting for here is to get the Supreme Court to say that the definition of publisher is very broad and that all of these types of, they want as wide a latitude of protection under section 230 as they can get. And it's right. not to me just about this part of section 230, but it's also about the other part of section 230. Like what they don't want is they don't want Section 230 to somehow be very limited. Like the Ninth Circuit said in, in the – there's a dissenting opinion um, that was really interesting where there were two – there was a concurrence and a dissent. But both what the concurrence and the dissent both agreed on is that they felt that 230 needed to be interpreted much more narrowly. Um, I had some notes on that. Yeah, so um, the concurrence agreed with the decision – but felt that 230 protection should not apply to the algorithms. That if they're if they're feeding people content that leads to this type of activity and that that lead that helps promote terrorist recruiting, that the use of algorithms should not fall within 230 because that's not third party content. See, but again, if the incumbent can deal with that, but like a startup, the algorithm is the thing that makes it 
engaging. Like you can't, you could never like talk or gab. What, the other ones aren't going to have the the infrastructure to make to still survive with those kind of restrictions. Right. The, the two judges who wrote separately said basically said that in their view. Section 230 should protect you for just publishing the content, just putting the content on your website or a third party putting the content on your website. But once you have an algorithm that starts pushing that content forward, you should have liability because you're taking a role. It's a curation role. Right. Okay. All right. Right. So what do you, which I think, you know, what do you think? Can kind of go, what do I think? What do you think is the right answer? And what do you want to happen? So what do you think is the correct ruling? And then what do you think would be the, best policy? I think the correct ruling based on my reading of 230 and those statements of policy that precede it that I I read at the beginning of this, I think the correct ruling is that 230 only protects for putting the, the, for the content being on your site, but doesn't protect you once you start pushing it with algorithms. All right. Once you start manipulating the user experience through algorithms, because we all know how they, like, they're using the algorithms to favor certain I content know. over other I'm content. I'm shadow banned. So <laughs> if, if they're going to take an active role in pushing certain things and suppressing other yeah. things, then they should be responsible for what they push what they push out there and the harm that it causes. This is not the innocent, hey, I have a website and people can put whatever they want right. on my website. Now, that's not to say that what I think the law should yeah, be. Yeah, what do you think the law should be? What do you think the best policy well, would be? I think the internet should be a free-for-all. Nice. I mean, I think people should be, a, I think, I don't think websites, first of all, I don't think websites should have any liability for anything that gets put put out through them. But I also don't really think, I mean, I don't really think, I don't think they should have the ability to really discriminate between what somebody posts and what somebody doesn't post. Like once you're going to put something out there like Twitter, I'll use Twitter as an example and YouTube would be the same thing and say, we're going to allow this platform for public communication, which is really how Twitter has always promoted itself. Right. Right. At that point, if Kanye West wants to put out, you know, stuff about Jewish people, he should be allowed to do that. If Richard Spencer wants to tweet about how much, you know, he loves fascism or whatever the case, he should be able to do that. If some communist wants to put out communist propaganda through Twitter, they should be allowed to do that. Like, I think we should allow the complete expression of human ideas really without limit. I mean, I, I don't have any problem with people putting hateful stuff out there. Um, because the way you counter bad ideas is with better ideas. And I'd rather see you have all the toxicity of human expression be out there on full display. And let us, let's see each other for who we really are than this weird curated experience that we're having right now. Now, the problem, of course, is there's stuff out there that is deeply, deeply toxic. Well, kitty porn. And evil. Like, yeah. But – What's wrong with kitty porn? It's not the publication of it. It's the creation. I know. I feel like you could catch them easier if it's up there. Right. I mean, you know, I'm not, and I'm not trying to advocate that child pornography should be out there. It's abhorrent. And anybody who, I mean. There's porn for kids. There's cartoon porn. Look, I was a public defender and I had the misfortune of representing a few sex offenders. Mm -hmm. I don't think those people can be fixed. Right. 
Like right. I think like at minimum life in prison and those people make me question. I have an opposition to the death penalty just because I don't think the state should have the power right, of life right. and death. Right, right. It's not a good precedent. But I have no problem with taking yeah. somebody who sexually abuses a child should be thrown in prison, locked up, throw away the key, right. solitary confinement. I have no empathy right. for that Castrated maybe. And there's a part of me, there's a, the, the more vicious part of me is like, you know what? Do it to him. Two in the back of the head in the parking lot behind the yes. courthouse, and that'll solve that problem. But again, I, I don't want to hand the government the power no, no. Of, 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 of life Because and death, treason is a capital offense, and at this point, defending the Constitution, I think, has, can be, would be considered treason. Yeah, I mean, just, no government entity should ever have the power to, I agree. Kill it. to impose death yeah. on the people that are subject to its authority. Yeah. But, so... But, you know, our curated internet has done absolutely nothing to even limit the distribution of child pornography. So my answer oh, would be, wow. yeah. how, would, how, would a free, how would a free-for-all internet be right. worse it's than like what we already have? It's like the drug war. It's like, yeah, and? Right. Like two I mean, of my okay. siblings right. died of drug-related, you know, problems. Right. Pro- prohibition hasn't saved any lives. Not in my world. Right, the, the this this weird, selectively curated, selectively censored internet hasn't restrained the worst forms of pornography from being put out into the world. And it's true, like that. And, yeah, if if it were free for all, like truly a free for all, you would have the people would go to sites that allowed that kind of third party curation, and YouTube doesn't. I mean, I just feel like a lot of this stuff restrains trade as well. I mean, is there an argument that these guys are monopolies and should? I, I talked to Robert Barnes once about this topic. I don't know if you know who he is, but he um, he suggested that Twitter or things that were like eighty percent of the market or de facto monopolies, they could be the antitrust laws could somehow be used to restrain their activity. Can't remember his argument though. <laughs> it's, I'm not an expert on that Can't area, remember. but I mean, I think they are. They're certainly monopolistic, especially when you talk about companies like Facebook and Google that seem to gobble up all of their competitors. Yes, yes, and they had the advantage um, of being chosen in the beginning, like Sergey Brin. He was won yeah, a DARPA I mean, contest, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. There's an article on Quartz how the NSA was behind Google. I mean, don't even know how that got out. Well, and, and there, there are CIA-fronted banks that provided a lot of the financing for companies like Facebook. And I mean, the, the you start going down the oh, rabbit hole of how all these companies started. Like this mythology of like, oh, these two guys started this no. in their garage and it became this, it doesn't happen that way. No, I think I you looked into like you, nine out of 10 of the 10 biggest American big tech guys were like one degree away from military intelligence. Like a grandfather or whatever. I mean, we have- we have such a highly regulated and government controlled form of capitalism in this country. Nobody becomes a ma- a major massive, you yeah. know, one of the, you know, 10 largest companies in America without the blessings of the government, right? You can start a successful small business in America still yeah. without the government holding your hand to get you there, but you're not starting a big business in, 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 in without the blessing. When do you think that was the turning point? Because I feel like Obama was the last nail in the coffin. Like you could not be truly, truly influentially wealthy without being government connected. Like it just, I feel like that was the tipping point. But do you think the tipping point was like Woodrow Wilson? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't call Obama the tipping point. I would call Obama the period on the end of the yeah, sentence. Yeah, the last nail. You know, I mean, 
Obama is an interesting figure to me because from somebody who, you know, I was sort of a young idealistic leftist in my younger days, like Obama destroyed any like idealism that existed on the left. I mean, I tell, because another thing that makes my, my leftist friends mad when I say, yeah, Obama accomplished what Richard Nixon Absolutely. only dreamed of. He destroyed the anti-war it's left. It's called the contrary law of democracy. I created it. Like the thing that your side, the opponent could never hurt you the way your side hurts you because you're not vigilant against them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, he destroyed the anti, just like the neocons did the the fiscal conservative right. Like they just, it's over. Right, and then the neocons all went home to the Democratic Party where they belong. Yeah, that, that's where, where we are now. I mean, they're like Ukraine, like the warmongers, the vicious warmongers are all Democrats now. So, but, yeah, go ahead. It, as in, the Democratic Party has always been the party of war. Yes, if you I mean, look at who's absolutely new. LBJ, FDR, yeah. Wilson, absolutely positive. B- Bush was the ex- Bush was actually yeah, the exception. Yeah, totally, hundred percent. And it's when you know, and again, he was he was the oh, the Obama of of the of the of the yes. right in that you know he destroyed isolationism yeah. and non intervention on the right. Yeah, that's true. He was neocon puppet. But speaking of puppetry, I want to know. Uh, if you, I don't know in your research if you stumbled upon or focused on like the origins of the internet, that kind of thing. It seems to me, I mean, I remember at watching it evolve, I did a show. So I've been broadcasting for 10 years. So I, like, so I do a podcast now, but I used to have a radio show. And I did a radio show on is the internet a limited hangout? You know, I don't know when it was, maybe. It was probably six or eight years ago. I was like, or maybe six years ago. It's like, wait a second. It's because they then when they started to rein it in because it was really free for all. And everybody, I just feel like maybe you and I are around the same generation and that our generation is the one that could really wake up through the internet. My kids are totally curated stuff. They really can't wake up. And my mom is still watching Fox News, but there was us. It's kind of like when the the old school you know, middle class wouldn't let movie theaters into their town. So they brought, they censored it and it was all wholesome and you got, it's a wonderful life. And then everybody got a movie theater. And then all of a sudden you're getting behind the green door or whatever. So I I feel like there is a, that, that we were the gateway. They gave us the unfettered internet to get us to trust it, to go to it for information, to put all our information on it. And once that was well-established, once there was no turning back, the internet is a two-way street of information. So on the one hand, it's total surveillance, like this book, Surveillance Valley, lays out very clearly. And then on the other hand, I feel like they, the, the information that gets to you is now the only place, like print media and stuff is basically done. That, that they can control how you get information. And then, of course, there's that added thing of putting the public square in the digital space, which is so easy to curate and manipulate. It's just, you might as well, I mean, it, that article in course that I was talking about actually has, it, it says that they use your searches to create a much better profile of you than anything you could ever voluntarily like assert about yourself. And they will use AI to create around you an entirely artificial birds of a feather universe that can do anything from, they say it's to set you straight, but of course they also can use it to radicalize people, which I found in other government documents. So uh, it seems to me it was a setup from the beginning. Like you said, it was created by the defense department, you know, 
give me your version of what I just said. Am I right? Am I wrong? What do you think? I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I was born in 1971, right? So um, that puts me at an age of people that grew up with, without the internet and without cell phones, but in my, you know, relatively young adulthood, these things became the regular tools of society, both commercially and socially. Um, whereas like, if you take somebody like my mother, for example, she'll never be fully integrated into the, you know, social media internet world. Cause she was too old when it all became right. Mine reality. Too. It's my mother's 94th um, birthday today. So happy birthday, mom. She's a, she's a fan. Happy birthday. <laughs> but I'm around your the, uh, um, age, so I had the exact same experience. So so we, we're the only generation that straddles that line, right. right? Those that came after us don't know what the world was like before. Like, we're old enough to remember what, what the before times were. <laughs> definitely. I definitely. Right? I remember the Cold War. Um, I mean, I remember it. Now I look back and I was like, hmm, sounds like a defense industry plot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so um, I think it was always envisioned ultimately as a tool of centralized authoritarian control. And it's the greatest tool of centralized authoritarian control that was ever yeah. built. Right. Yeah. I mean, and it's not like it's a new thing. Like radio in some ways was one, yeah, definitely, but a primitive one. Right. Television was a better one. If you ever read any of Marshall McLuhan's work, no. right. You know, Oh, Marshall McLuhan was a, a observer of media in like the sixties and seventies. Oh, yeah. I've heard the name. Mostly in the sixties. And he wrote amazing stuff about how TV was being used to control the world and how media was being used to control the world. A lot of it's really like prescient stuff. If you, if you read it oh. now and he would have, the, the internet would have blown his mind. He would have been, yeah, of yeah course. right. Right. I mean, it's, it's the, it's the next yeah, it's step. The, it's in the, the personal evolution. television. It's the individualized television. And then, right. It's, yeah. you know, the printing press was, in, was invented and suddenly we had this liberation of human ideas because people could yes. print things and disseminate them. But it was, it was very decentralized. What has happened since then is information becoming more and more centralized, right? Radio and then TV and networks, newspapers and corporate newspapers, and ultimately internet is the next step in that centralization of the dissemination of information. And there are little things that leak out like this show or other, you know, sort of dissident media out there, just like... So I came of age in Southern California and I was in love with the whole world of punk rock. And I used to, I used to travel, like as soon as I could get my driver's license, I would drive all over Los Angeles and find little independent record stores. And what I was always scouring them for among other things, you know, records that I'd never heard of that I'd never heard, but I had heard yeah. about, but I used to buy fanzines were like a huge yep. thing back then. People would make a little fanzine in their basement and then distribute it through their local record stores. These are like stapled together. And we would do tape trading through ads in the back. I'm really dating myself. Where you would there'd be like personal ads I had in the cassettes back. And it'd be my car. And it'd be some kid from like Minnesota who would say, if you send me a tape of the bands you're listening to, I'll send you a tape wow, of the bands. That, that I'm is listening awesome. To. And we would exchange like underground punk rock cassette wow. tapes in the mail all across the country through these little fanzines, right? Incredibly like decentralized form of media doesn't exist anymore. Right. So 
these but things it could are, have. Are like all, I, the internet could have like that's what people complain is that we got people used to just start their own websites and then all of a sudden mm-hmm. you have Facebook and they never do that anymore. But here's the difference is I don't think it ever really could have been because I don't think it was ever. I, I think like you, I think all of that. Because right, the platform is the flip, box. Right. You yeah. can't flip a switch yeah. and get from the Internet of the 1990s yeah. to the Internet of 2023. Yeah. Right. It's an incremental process. You have to, both technologically with, but also the integration to people's interactions. Right. We didn't all accept social media immediately. We didn't all embrace these things immediately. I was resistant to Facebook for so long. Like all my friends were on Facebook. I'm like, that's yeah. stupid. I'm not doing that. And then eventually, like everybody else, I got sucked <laughs> into it. You know, I didn't do Twitter for a long time. And then I got sucked into that. Like I'm grateful that I was banned from Twitter because I can see the difference in myself. I'm a happier person without yeah, yeah. Twitter. Yeah, definitely. Like that's a toxic influence on your psyche, even though there's stuff there that I found that I really liked or the stuff that, that led me to stuff that I liked. You know, it, it has See, a I like it because I'm shadow banned. So the only people who communicate with me are people who seek me out. That's my experience. Some people say that, that I do show up in their feed, but most people say, agree with me. But it's also, unless you're using it like I do, like people really curate news stories for me and give me obscure stuff, which I use and read their tweets. Like it's a unique situation, I think. But it can really waste your time. So I have found that I... I have, just like my kids, have a, a limited attention span when it comes to reading. I used to be able to, on, on vacation I can do it, but in my house when I'm going to bed at night, I cannot sit there and read for an hour. I like tweet for an hour and I read for 10 minutes. And it's just, you that's, know, it's useful for me, but. That's not a, that's not a better world yes, for us. that's right. That's right. And so, and the example I always give people is if you have any doubts of what the internet is for and what it can be, all you have to do is look at China. The internet is their greatest tool for controlling their population. I'm not sure that regime would still exist without the internet. Wow. Because if you look at it, things were opening up and westernizing there at an alarming rate. When the wall fell. Yeah. Just Russia, it all happened too early. Like it happened too early for the Soviet Union to be saved by the internet. Yeah. But in China, the process was behind where the Russians were or where the Soviets were. And they reclaimed control over their society um, because everybody is on, I can't remember what the name of the app is that they use there, but they have an app that's like their social media. It's their WeChat. Yeah, I think that's it. Uh, it's their social media, it's their financial, it's, you know, now their COVID passport, like all of that stuff. Think about, I mean, I've actually been there. I went there as a teenager. Wow. Uh, my father did a lot of business in the Far East. And we actually took a family trip when I was like 15, where we went to China and toured around China. It's a huge country geographically, and there are parts of it that are incredibly rural. And to be able to exercise control over a population that is that large and spread over such right. a wide geographic area, you can't do that at the barrel of a gun. Right. But an app that everybody has a cell phone, there are more – one of my favorite stats is there are more people in the world who have access to a cell phone than people who have access to a flushing toilet. All right. I have three things to say to you. 
they want part of the food shortage thing, supply chain thing. They're trying to get like these isolated little farmers to use an iPhone, use the internet to like get their essentials that they're not otherwise getting. So all the supply chain interruption and stuff, if you dig in and dig in and dig in, it all goes down to like the World Economic Forum page, the future of food. It's all about getting those exact people you're talking about completely reliant on the digiverse. That's one thing. Um, the uh, WeChat, now that you mentioned that, there were two different shootings reported on Lunar New Year in California. You probably wear them because you're in California, one in Half Moon Bay and one in, I think, Monterey Park. Well, I'm actually in Oregon now, oh, but I'm aware you. of it. Yes, yeah, so yeah. I would know if you were on Twitter still, but uh, <laughs> more power to you. Actually, because that's what I always look for is the 49 acres. So, but they, in these stories about the this shooting, and I, you know, I my baseline is that these things are somehow provoked or manufactured by the powers that be. But in the stories, I believe WeChat featured in both stories. So when something like that happens, and I I notice like you know this is two events involving Asian Americans or Asian communities, I wouldn't be surprised if WeChat comes out strong going forward as a as a propaganda topic for some reason. I don't know what they're after. I don't know if they want us to adopt it or want us to ban it or I don't know what. And then I forget what the last thing you said. So I can't remember my point. Well, they're, I think they're headed to a WeChat world for us. They want Oh, that isn't here. that what Musk is just, trying to do with Twitter? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's exactly what he's trying to do with Twitter. I think they would love, they would love to, he's been open. He says it. This is the thing that's amazing about Elon Musk. And it's why I like scream at my conservative friends about him. I'm like, he's telling you what he wants to do. Yes. He wants Twitter to be WeChat. He wants you to have a chip in your brain. Yeah. Right. Like Trump used to be like that. Why? He's like, worry about do pro- take the guns first and worry about due process later. I'm like, that's not what you want to be hearing. <laughs> like, you know, but yes, yes, Musk's interesting. Yes, my conservative friends also get mad at me because I call it the Trump jab. Oh, yeah. Because that's I've what it trademarked is. Uh, oh, they the do not, prick. They do not like to be reminded. They all hate the jab, and it's like, okay, well, who gave it warp to Warp speed. President well, Warp Biden speed. Well, Biden mandated it. Well, who gave it to him? <laughs> President Warp speed. But I really am surprised that my little Twitter hashtag hasn't taken off because I've trademarked the prick instead of the jab because I needed to get away from the censors that now will take down the jab, the vax, whatever. And I just loved my little double entendre, but it doesn't seem to have caught on. But we could, you know, President Warp speed. Let's well, call someday, President someday warp we'll speed. have to have a conversation about the California agricultural land grab and the the scam that is drought in California. Oh my gosh! Yes. Um, well, are you are you aware of the stuff that they seem to be spraying in our skies, or are you not there yet? I don't know that much about it. It's been sort of pointed yeah. to me, but I don't. I, I'm honestly not well informed enough about Just it. But observe. Been, You've got big sky. Well, I noticed. Yeah. I notice how much of it there is. And by the way, I notice how much less of it there is here yeah. in rural Oregon than there was when I was down LA in California. Is the worst. And D- San Diego might the be. The sky worse. here is a different color. Yeah. My kids have noticed that the yeah. sky is a different color here. It's it just constant here. It's so depressing. The only thing that made me forget how depressed I was about what they do to the skies here was lockdown because it went away. And I was like, well, this is even worse than chemtrails. But at least we don't have the chemtrails, and then the chemtrails came back. So, 
Well, I spent almost 25 years representing farmers, small farmers mostly in agriculture in California. And what's been being done to them is a crime that's happening completely off oh, the radar. Let's do that next time. All right, good. Okay. We're done. So, huh? uh, Anthony, what do you want people to know? If anything, it seems like you're you're just here for the uh, conversation, which is lovely. I really appreciate that. I yeah, feel I a little guilty um, that I take your time I mean, because now that I know that you're just I'm, so expensive. <laughs> I'm I'm still practicing law in California, um, and I'm uh, working on getting my license up here in Oregon. So I'm happy to um, give any kind of consultation to people. Um, that they like. Um, I can be reached. My website is www.ramondomiller.com for the law firm. If you've got legal questions, I give lots of free consultation. I'm happy to to do that. Um, I've represented people on kind of both sides. I represent a lot of businesses, but I'm usually small and medium-sized family businesses. Um, But I also represent individuals and we've pursued claims for folks on behalf of people fired over vaccine mandates, among other things. Um, so I'm always happy to, to answer questions if people want to take take the time. Um, I have okay. I'm going to promote something for my dog. I have my dog has a Facebook page. Uh, we travel <laughs> no a lot chance. together. Does he ride the motorcycle no, he, yes, too? He does. No, we he I road trip everywhere. I don't fly, so he travels with me everywhere. Um, so we have a, a Facebook page called Toby's Dog Friendly Hotel Reviews. If you want to search that up, so follow us on great. Facebook. Toby's Dog Friendly. Hotel reviews, like dot com. Yeah, so as we <laughs> oh, travel, we review hotels and restaurants. Okay. Yeah, that's on Facebook. Uh, it's not a commercial thing. Right. I don't make money off it. It has no ads or anything other than what Facebook, you know, they yeah. stick on there. It's just something I do for fun that I've been doing for a few years now. So if people want to look at that, it's mostly cute dog stuff. And I, I sometimes post things from around here. Um, here, I live in uh, rural Oregon now on the Oregon so coast. So are you? Um, Near, oh no, it was a river. I was on a river with my friends who have the berry farm in Portland. It was not on the coast. I live in the uh, the Coquille River Valley, uh, which I think is one of the most beautiful places on earth. It's a lovely little agriculture area. I live in a small town. I've got a little ranch outside of town. Um, I have a YouTube channel, which is not political or legal at all. Uh, it's something I started just as a hobby thing, just to amuse myself. It's very amateur, so I want everybody that <laughs> What's if you it want called? sophisticated work. It's not sophisticated. I've done one episode. It's called 49 Acres of Freedom is the YouTube channel. There's one episode up, and I'm working on episode two. I kind of got derailed uh, during the holidays with my kids good. home for the holidays and just yeah, things going good. on. Um, but I'm actually working on the second episode right now. Um, so if you don't mind looking at amateur video, there's just short videos of – um, mostly stuff around here um, on the property and like what I'm what I'm doing here. But I'm working remotely, practicing law in California. I'm working on getting um, some things set up up here uh, for my Oregon license. I'm licensed in Washington now, so people in Washington State um, can reach out to me, and soon uh, I'll be set up in Oregon. But um, yeah, no longer no longer on Twitter, thankfully. But um, I'm you know those are where that's where you can see stuff. That I, I do. have. Friends, now I went up to Oregon and Washington to visit farmers and homesteaders and podcasters and people I know, but all in that same mindset like three or four different groups of them. And I have friends in Idaho, I have a lot of homesteaders and just general naturalists in my community, the community of listeners here. And I wonder if you would be interested in for your whatever it is, the Facebook thing, YouTube, whatever, if we should have a Zoom party 
with those people, be, you know, 20, 25 people and share ideas and whatever, uh, and maybe help foster a kind of, you know, it's a little bit of a spread out community, but you probably face a lot of the same issues and have the same, you know. Oh yeah. I would, I would love to do that. I'm, I'm trying to look into a bunch of things that I want to do here on the property. I want to put a greenhouse up here. I mean, I know people Um, who do that stuff and can definitely give you pointers. I'm going to, I'm going to set that up. um, You know, I want to, I want to figure out how to keep chickens here. So, you know, I've got sort of a, the people who own this house before me have um, like converted a shed to a chicken area, but it seems, I'm not sure that that's going to be adequate. Um, I have a, there's a farmer here, a local farmer who um, leases pasture from us. So he keeps cows here uh, part of the year. The the property floods a lot in the wintertime because we're at the floor of a valley right on the river. So he takes his cows away in the wintertime, but he harvests hay off of our backfield and he keeps cows here and he pays me a combination of cash and beef. Nice. I've got two freezers full of beef here, which I love. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I'm always happy to connect with other folks that are, you know, I'm trying to figure out an alternative power source. I have my own water. I have a all right, all, all of these people. So, so I have Parallel Mike is great with the alternative power sources. I'll invite him. Wild Bill and Ash, they send me the most wonderful tallow because they will render it when they get a, a cow a year or something like that. And they share it with me, which is like amazing. Um, I know people with everybody I know has chickens. <laughs> so obviously, I'm sure you too. But I think this might come together. I'm going to tell people if you're listening to this and you are doing anything like that, you have one chicken uh, and you want to be a part of this, uh, email me, Monica Perez Show at gmail.com, and we'll see if we can set that up. And I've got a few other things that we're going to do plea bargains. We're going to do the drought. Maybe the drought thing will go, will be a nice, uh, you know, do that in the same month. So I will. We've got so many threads to pull on now, Anthony. It's always fun. We never run out of anything to say. So I really appreciate, I love all the things you're doing. I'm actually going to put that stuff in the show notes and see if people want to check out your, your man. of My mother would call you a Renaissance man. Um, I'm not sure there were Harleys and uh, I know there were chickens back then, but I feel like you're a modern, <laughs> modern Renaissance man. Well, I was, I've been very lucky that I, I, built a successful business, which at this point in my life has enabled me to have enough independence to, to move up here. And, you know, I, I usually work a little bit in the mornings and then I spend the rest of the day, you know, playing around on the property with these dogs and trying to do little projects and different things. Um, but you know, I've had people, I had somebody yell at me once on Twitter before I was off Twitter that I really didn't escape California because I moved to Oregon, but I don't think those people understand what Oregon is really like, like, the blue parts of Oregon are the right. big cities, but like the small towns like this are very conservative, traditional values. Like the people here have just been very wonderful and we love living here. And so I'm just trying to figure out bit by bit. I've got a list of projects in my head of what I want to do on the property for, for no other purpose other than it's just what I want to do for myself and for my family to develop this place. Um, but I'm, I'm very lucky in that regard and I can, I can work a little and still sustain myself and I have enough saved that I don't have to work full time anymore. I've heard that about um, still a lawyer and still happy. I've heard that about Oregon. So yes, that's RaymondoMiller.com. And some quack says Oregon Liberty Network will connect you. 
So start with that, but awesome. I'm definitely really going to try. I think it's a great idea to have all the homesteaders, farmers and stuff who um, listen to the show and whom I've met over the times to put together a Zoom party. I think that's a great idea. I'm going to go with that. Until next time, thank you so much, Anthony Raimondo. You have been listening to a live dive on Deep Dives with Monica Perez. Monica Perez.